Good morning. I'm really excited and really thankful for this opportunity this morning. I get to introduce uh, my friend Jamie Gorman. He is a professor at Johnson University. Uh, he's a doctor in all the stuff he's going to be speaking on. He knows he's an expert. Uh, if you've been here the last several weeks, uh, we've been walking through a, a series called Wise Choices Behind the Curtain, and I don't want to take any time from him, so just a quick quick reminder what we're talking about is that wise choices scripturally is not just whether it's right or wrong if it's okay or not it's trying to do the best possible thing every time in light of what God has given us logic strategy anything so that's what we're trying to do here this morning um, another if you remember last week we talked about peacemaking is all about not so much just stopping the fighting but about creating unity, creating synergy, creating focus, creating the kind of kingdom that Jesus wants, a wholeness that has purpose. And today is the, the, the wrapping up of the Beatitudes idea, and that, that is about the persecuted. Jesus said, blessed are the persecuted. But as, we, as we've been preparing this for months and months in advance and praying about this, what we've been convicted about is, yes, we are persecuted. Yes, we need to pray for that. Yes, we need to be more aware of the persecuted Christians around the world. But there's an even bigger problem that sometimes we unintentionally are part of persecution. We help make it happen. For our brothers and sisters, each other, whether it's in our own congregation, in our community, around the world, uh, sometimes we unintentionally are the ones who are doing the persecuting, and that, that is unacceptable. So Dr. Gorman is one of the experts in several of these things he's going to talk about. I'm so excited to, to be able to hear. And here's the other reason we're bringing him in. We've been walking through in this series Dr. Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And the seventh habit is sharpen the saw. And what that means is never think you know it all. Never think you've got it all down. Always keep learning. Always keep coming back and saying, what else? What else? What else? So this morning, this is something I'm passionate about. This is stuff that I'm excited about. This is stuff I've been studying about for a long time. But we're bringing in an expert to try and share and convict us so that we can get better. You can get more than I can tell you. Does that make sense? So would you give it a warm welcome to Dr. Jamie Gorman. Thank you, John. Thanks, John, and uh, thanks, Noah. I was back there, I was like, Noah. Do you have water? I'm, uh, if I break out in a coughing fit, I'm sorry. This morning, of course, I would develop a, uh, a cough. So hopefully that won't rear its head. Thank you so much for inviting me to be with you uh, today. It is a real pleasure to be here in Kingston. Um, I'm, I live in, at Johnson University, and uh, I walk to work and walk home so I don't get out much. And it was so great this morning to drive out in the country. I'm from the country, and so... My machine took me, you know, the back route, and it was, you just live in a beautiful, beautiful area. Uh, so thank you so much. I'm honored to be your guest. Um, Noah and I were catching up. Noah was in my class just one year ago. It seems like a lot longer than that, um, but uh, it's so good to be here, and it's been so good the last few months to, uh, several months, to be talking with John and, and hearing about his passion. Um, and so thank you so much. Uh, can I start us off with prayer? Father, thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for these people. Thank you for your church. I ask that you would pour through me today the gift of preaching, that you would break our hearts for the unity of your people. 
We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Christina Cleveland, she wrote this book. It's called Disunity in Christ, Uncovering the Hidden Forces That Keep Us Apart. I highly recommend the book. She's a social psychologist uh, who works with Christian communities to build unity, especially unity concerning like multicultural and multi-ethnic issues. And she begins her book with her own story, and it's really actually more of a confession than a story. Uh, And so I want to start today by reading it to you, but I want to give you a warning, okay? Um, Because what she says, uh, if you have close black Christian friends, uh, you will not be surprised by what she says. But if you don't have close black Christian friends, what she says might be like, you know, shocking or, uh, or alienating. She is a black woman who works for Christian unity. I want you to understand her context and her perspective before you hear her words. And I want you to understand in this section that I'm going to start with, Uh, that's sort of framing what I want to say today. She is critiquing the way that most Christians, most Christians tend to perceive people unlike themselves in sort of simplistic and inaccurate ways. And in this section, she's calling all of us, every single one of us, to the carpet. She's calling herself to the carpet and asking us, are you guilty of this? And she will admit at the end that she is guilty of this. Here's what she says. Over time, When I met other Christians, I found myself asking them what church they attended. Some answers were more acceptable than others. Look, the way I saw it, there were two types of Christian, the wrong kind of Christian and the right kind of Christian. It was that simple. It was that simple. Wrong Christian was not a thinker. All right, so she's going to go on wrong Christian for a second. He hadn't read a book in the previous two years, and he had the limited vocabulary to prove it. Although, come to think of it, he did read a book a few years back about a woman's rightful place in the home. Wrong Christian lacked cross-cultural sensitivity and somehow managed to avoid spending quality time with anyone who did not share his race and culture. Naturally, wrong Christian only dated women within his race, although he occasionally crushed on the more exotic types. When he was not rocking the suburbs in his gas-guzzling SUV, he surfed or played ultimate or some other inane sport. He proudly served in the United States military and inexplicably to me was more concerned with the preservation of the Second Amendment than the First. He was a card-carrying and proselytizing Calvinist. In fact, Tulip was boldly painted above his door, and he voted Republican, Republican, Republican. And he was a he. Seriously, did you expect wrong Christian to be a woman? Pshaw. Curiously, right Christian was a lot more like me, she says. While driving her Prius en route to the farmer's market, she self-righteously zipped past wrong Christian's lumbering SUV, blithely unaware of the fact that Prius owners and farmer's market shoppers, who are basically the same people, are consumers, just like everyone else. She, right Christian, was a woman of the world. She was well-traveled and able to thrive in any cultural setting, except for those conservative Christian ones in the flyover states, naturally. She boasted of the ethnic diversity of her friend group and joked that she and her friends looked like they had just walked off the pages of a United Colors of Benetton clothing ad. Despite her IQ, or perhaps due to it, she overlooked the fact that as well-educated, upwardly mobile, frequent Benetton shoppers, she and her friends were perhaps not quite as diverse as she thought. 
She hopped on to the poverty, social justice, and environmental bandwagons, as well as any other bandwagons that were in vogue at the time. She wasn't bound by any p political party affiliation. Rather, she thought for herself and voted independently. In other words, she voted Democrat, Democrat, Democrat. Right Christian was a reader and a writer. In fact, she'd written more books than wrong Christian had read. She was an equal opportunity dater. Translation, she'd date anybody but wrong Christian and his buddies. She was strong. She knew that she was wonderful, charming, and quite frankly, a more valuable member of the body of Christ than wrong Christian. All of these char characteristics and many, many more made her right Christian. And so she says it all began with two labels, right Christian and wrong Christian. The funny thing is, she says, the more I talked with people about these labels, the more I realize that many of us carry our own descriptions of right Christian, wrong Christian. Perhaps in your opinion, you, her right Christian is your wrong Christian, and her wrong Christian is your right Christian. Or maybe wrong Christian and right Christian are totally different birds in your life. I suspect, I hope anyway, that this speaks to some of you. It certainly speaks to me. And I'm wondering how this happened. How did we get here? How have Christians come to participate in this kind of sorting? In terms of right now, you all know, right? Like, I mean, if you are breathing and alive and paying attention, you know that we as a culture are wrestling hard with a desire to sort. Our culture really encourages us to participate in what Bill Bishop actually calls the big sort. He's got a book actually titled The Big Sort. And listen to what uh, one writer, uh, how she describes Bill Bishop's book. She says, Bishop's book tells the story of how we've geographically, politically, and even spiritually sorted ourselves into like-minded groups in which we silence dissent, grow more extreme in our thinking, and consume facts that support our beliefs only making it even easier to ignore evidence that our positions might be wrong. Bishop writes in his book, as a result, we now live in this giant feedback loop, hearing our own thoughts about what's right and wrong bounced back to us by television shows we watch, newspapers and books that we read, the blogs we visit online, the sermons that we hear, the neighborhoods we live in. Anything, any of this sound at all? at all familiar to your daily life, there is a strong cultural tendency right now to divide and to sort and retreat into bunkers where we're distanced from people that are different from us. And this tendency, folks, is as prevalent in the Christian church as it is in American society. We know, <laughs> we know right Christian and wrong Christian. But here's the deal. What if, what if, what if participating in the big sort is fundamentally at odds with the way of Christ? What if participating in the big sort subverts the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What if the big sort destroys the church and its witness to the world? What if? Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. When we return, or when we turn to Jesus' teaching about Christian community, okay, when we turn to his teaching, we find a pretty sharp contrast to the big sort mentality. Jesus said unity. Jesus said unity is essential 
to the Christian community, when I mean essential, I mean it's part of its essence, its very being. Unity, Jesus says. And he said this very clearly in the Gospel of John chapter 17. And so I want to I hang out in John 17 for just a minute. Some of you will know, some of you won't, that the, the, church, the Christian church is the long tradition that it comes from. It started because of John, John 17 and reading John 17. So I want to spend a little time in, in John 17. So the Gospel of John is, you all know this probably, most of you know that um, John the Gospel of John is one of four takes on Jesus' life in the New Testament. I'm going to hold off on that just a second, Anita, if, if uh, before that we put that up. Um, uh, I didn't give her a sheet. I'm sorry, Anita, so I'm going to be talking to her up there and when, when she's changing things. Um, and so in the Gospel of John, it's kind of a unique take on Jesus' life. There's stuff in John that's not in the other three Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And one of the things that's in John that's not in those other Gospels is this big section from John 13 to John 17. And that section is often called the farewell discourse. And so in these five chapters, it's just fabulous. We get this amazing take from Jesus. Uh, it's kind of like a farewell address where Jesus gives his last wishes, his last wishes to his disciples, his last wishes and thoughts. And in the farewell address, at the very end of it, the very last chapter is chapter 17. The whole chapter is Jesus's prayer. It's his last prayer, according to the gospel of John, for you and me, for his disciples, for us. This is like, okay, I'm getting ready to go listen up. Here's what I'm about. And so, it's important but for a couple of reasons. First, it's the last major prayer according to John. And second, Jesus moves in this prayer, the, the major part of the prayer, as the first part is to his disciples then in the first century. But as he moves toward the end of this prayer, he starts talking to you and to me. So listen up. Listen up. This is what Jesus prays for us his followers, his community. And now, Anita, we'll go ahead and put up John 17, 20 through 23. Uh, read this with me. I ask only on behalf of these, this is Jesus praying to, to the Father, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that's me and you, we've believed because of the apostles' word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you've given me, I have given them so that they may be one as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be completely one, so that the world may know you've sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So in the Son's last will and testament to the Father, for us, he prays that we would be united so that the world would believe in Jesus. We could talk about a whole lot of stuff in this section of the prayer, but I want to explain two major ideas, right? I want to explain two major ideas that I get from this prayer. And the first one is the fact that Jesus calls us to be united, but I want to talk about the nature of that unity. The unity that Jesus talks about that we experience in community is analogous to the Trinity, to the triune unity. This is not an ordinary kind of unity. The unity here, and don't get me wrong, the unity that, that Jesus is praying about is partly a gift of Christ to the church that's already there, but it's also the task of the church. This unity that should mark Christian communities like this one right here is bound up and rooted in the very oneness of our God. So look at these uh, 
This next slide, I've got bolded here the portions that are really emphasizing that. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that that our unity is like the Father and the Son. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may become completely one. But what does it mean to be one or to be completely one? So I want to make sure I distinguish between unity and uniformity because Jesus doesn't pray here for uniformity. He doesn't pray for like organizational uniformity or doctrinal uniformity or political uniformity. That's just not the prayer. The prayer is for a unity that is rooted in and grows out of the love of God. Throughout the passage, love, love is the key descriptor of the relationship between the Father and the Son and between the Son and the disciples and between us all of us, the Christian community. Now, that unity will look different, no doubt, as it manifests itself through time, but it's always rooted in the same thing. It's always rooted in the love of God. Uh, Just one more thing on this first part of this unity that God calls us to and the nature of it. Um, If it is the source or the... If love is the source or the glue that holds the Christian community together, I'm wondering what it looks like, because you all know that love's not like a fluffy feeling, right? Um, That's not what love is. This love right here, especially as it talks about in John, is cross-shaped. When he says love, he's he's talking about self-giving and self-sacrificial living. That's what love. That's what love means here. And when Christ, or when he says that I gave them the glory, the glory there is not like woohoo, look at me. The glory is laying down everything in the Gospel of John for for the other. So, first, Christ calls us to be one, that unity is grounded in the love of God, and if you're looking for it, you'll see it when you see self-giving and self-sacrifice, the giving up of our rights for the good of others. All right, so that's the first idea. The second idea I want to make sure that you are catching in this is that unity is for a purpose. I mean, sure, unity for its own sake, it's awesome, that's great, but this prayer, in this prayer of Jesus, unity has a goal. It has an end. It's so that the world will believe. And Anita, can you put the next slide up there? And I've emphasized here those places. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe. That so that is really, really significant. That they may be completely one so that the world may know our unity will show the world that Christ has sent, that God has sent, or that the Father has sent the Son, and, and that the world, that God has loved them even as he has loved the Son. That's the end. That's the goal. What we learn from Jesus' prayer is that unity of the church. Catch this. Our unity is missional. It's got an evangelistic end. It's got a goal. William Herzog II says it like this, and I've got a quote of this. You can go ahead and put up there. He says this. This is a long quote, but hang with me because it's so important. The community's cohesion bears witness to its divine origin. We often think of mission as individuals going to mission fields for their work or as individuals or groups kind of being on mission in their daily context. But John here speaks about another witness in which the community itself is missional and therefore to attend to the well-being of the community is part of its mission to the world. And to nurture its unity is a form of witness to a divided, sorted world, I would say. So nurturing healthy communal life is an expression of an outgoing 
mission. So hear, hear what he's saying here? Unity and mission are two sides of the exact same coin. But here's the kicker. If our unity is actually, if we believe the prayer that our unity is actually bearing witness to Jesus' divine origin, if the church's unity, our unity, is part of our witness to the world, then the flip side must be in some ways true, that our divisions preclude the world from understanding who Christ is. Some of our divisions are counter to Christ's vision for community. Some of our divisions are counter to Christ's mission for the world. Look, I don't know how you hear this sermon. I don't know how you're… actually, that's not what I meant to say. I don't know how you hear this prayer, but I hear a sermon. I don't know how you hear this prayer, but I hear something like this. When the world sees your unity, they will take note. They will pay attention. Your unity, church, will be in stark contrast to the common divisions in the world. Those divisions, you know them, they've become so familiar that sometimes we just accept them and maybe we even live into them. You know the divisions, divisions by political party, divisions by race, divisions by wealth, division by nation. Your unity, church, will be in stark contrast to the big sort. You, the Christian community, will not be caught up in those divisions. You won't be co-opted by the world dragged along in their divisions and made mere instruments for their divisions, but instead you will break down those divisions through the power of the cross and the cross-shaped life, a life formed by daily living with sacrificial love. You, church, will break the chains of division. You, church, will live into Christ's gift of unity in such prophetically imaginative ways that the world will see, and they will take note. By your unity, they will see, they will see wholeness and restoration and justice and peace and, rec and reconciliation. And by your unity, Christ says, they will see Jesus. By your unity, they will want to follow Jesus. That's the way that I hear Jesus' last will and testament to the Father for us, his disciples the community of Christ. So how did we get from John 17 to the big sort? Right Christian, wrong Christian. How did the church get caught up in the big sort? Well, I want to tell you that story today. I know, I've only got 30 minutes, so I'm going to warn you, uh, not from now, but I think total. Um, but I'm going to warn you by day, all right, by day, I am a historian of Christianity, so I want to tell you the long version, but I am going to tell you the short version. And I want to tell you two stories right now about the big sort. I want to tell you one about denominations, and I want to tell you one about race. So you all know, after Jesus ascended... His followers started what became known as the church, the Christian community, and for all sorts of reasons, the disciples of Jesus quickly spread throughout the world, and everywhere they went, they started churches. And don't you worry, I brought a couple of maps with me today. So Anita, could you show them the first map? They started house churches in places where people spoke 
Greek, Latin, Aramaic, Syriac, Coptic, and other languages, you can see the red arrows. That's the spread of Christianity in the first several centuries. And the church grew, and millions of people joined the church over the first few centuries of its existence. I said millions. And the church expanded into Europe and into Africa and into India and even into China by the seventh century. Tremendous growth, an amazing story, but with, with that expansion came enormous enormous amounts of diversity. You can imagine the challenges of retaining unity within the kind of diversity that you're looking at here, different languages, different cultures, different political systems. And so naturally then, the churches, say, in North Africa there in Egypt, practiced communion, and they started articulating their doctrines about God and about Jesus in different ways than, say, the community in India. And that diversity of practice and belief eventually led to the division of the church. And so, Anita, can you show them the next picture? And I promise this is the last map, okay? I uh, could have brought 10, but I only brought you two. This is an important map, though, because you see those different colors. You can kind of see there are four different colors there. Each of those four colors illustrate some of the earliest institutional divisions that we had in the church. Each of those colors, there's red, purple, orange, and brown, those represent four major Christian groups by 1000 AD who were so divided they would not even take communion together. They often killed one another. Why? Well, there's lots of reasons, and it's very complex, but the theological reason was because they could not agree on how Jesus' humanity and divinity related in the one body of Jesus Christ. And so... They sorted. They bunkered. Right Christian, wrong Christian. And the sorting has never stopped. The sorting has never stopped. The Christian community, as you are well aware, if you know anything about the history of the church, has exhibited an uncanny inclination to divide. And so I present to you the next slide, which is the ugly tree. Okay? And it's ugly for a number of reasons. It's ugly because aesthetically it is ugly. Um, but it's also ugly because of the story that it's telling about the division of the church. It's not exactly historically accurate in all its ways, but I can't really draw a better one, so I'm going to use it to make my point. The church is divided and divided and divided and divided and divided, and these divisions have been for all sorts of reasons. The divisions have been for doctrines and creeds, over uh, practices, over race and ethnicity, over nationalism and politics, and sometimes these, these divisions have been violent and they've been vicious. So, for example, you can see they're kind of in the middle of the tree. You're seeing the Protestant Reformation there in the Roman Catholic, Anglican Reformed, Lutheran Radical Reformers. Those are the branches of the Protestant Reformation in the West, and from those come the denominations. And you're seeing there in that tree only a tiny, tiny number of the innumerable, innumerable denominations that we have today. In fact, let me show, show me this uh, next slide. You all will be aware, maybe some of you ex have experienced this. This is a, a picture of all the divisions in the church, right, all the movements, and you've got the teacher here pointing to one little slice there and say, see, this is where we came along and got the Bible right, and you have the students correctly recognizing, yay, Jesus is so lucky to have us. Christian communities divided, got into separate bunkers separated into right Christian and wrong Christian. And the more divided and bunkered Christians get, the easier it was and is to dehumanize, take the humanity away from those other Christians, from wrong Christians. I mean, literally, just in the first half of the 17th century, Christians killed 100,000s of other Christians. 
over political and religious conflict in Europe. I mean, it's insane. You thought our divisions were bad, right? Like, for the most part, Christians have stopped killing one another for the most part today, but we have not stopped dividing and sorting. That's one, that's one history of division. But I want to tell you another story as well. In American history, over the last 400 years, we've also sorted by this thing called race. And just like the denominational sorting, the racial segregation of our churches remains with us to this very day. In fact, hard, hard fact here to swallow, Sunday morning continues to be among the most segregated hours in our society. How'd that happen? How'd that happen? And the history here, I'm just going to be honest with you, is not comfortable, it's not easy, it's hard, but I'm having a hard time figuring out how to preach John 17 and not talk about this. So first, let me tell you this story quickly. We have to start with the creation of the idea of race, because I hope you all are aware, I mean, some of you are going to be aware, some of you may not be, that we made that idea up, right, that this idea of race, race is not actually real, it's an idea that we, that we created, and I can talk more about that later if, you, if you'd like, but first, so here's how we created this idea of race. First, European colonizers, and this is the super short version, all right? We got lots and lots and lots of the books that can flesh this out in hundreds of pages. I'm going to give you the couple-minute version. First, Europeans who were colonizing all over the world began lumping the people that they recognized into categories, all right? And they recognized uh, these categories. Often, they, they also called colors. And so they started labeling people by a color. You know, the, you know the song, right? Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Yes, right? No, no. That's a lie, right? I mean, yes, they're, all children are precious in Jesus' sight, but people aren't red, yellow, black, and white. We made that up beginning in the 17th century. Like, right? I'm not, I'm not white. Um, I probably shouldn't take 30 seconds to tell this, but I will. Um, I'm not white. Just yesterday, my, little do- my four-year-old daughter and I, you know, she's blonde hair, blue-eyed, uh, what society considers to be white. And, we, and she just was, we were watching a show and there were a lot of um, black and brown people on the show. And she says, Daddy, we're all the same color, right? And I'm like, oh, no, sweetie. We, no, everybody, God made everybody beautifully different colors and stuff. Let's think, think about what color, what color is Daddy and what color are you? And, and she correctly identified that she is peach and that I am light brown. <laughs> right? Because I am. I mean, I'm, I'm not white, folks. I'm light brown with like a hint of orange with maybe some, I don't know. I've got a weird color, okay? Um, I'm not white. Now, society believes me to be white, and we've created that. And my skin color is not in my DNA. I'm just DNA. My DNA is just as similar to a black person and more, more just as likely to be as similar to a black person as it is to a white person. Uh, there's nothing in DNA, nothing in DNA that indicates any race, right? You're aware of this, I hope. If you're not, I can point you to some studies to become more aware of that. So we made this idea up. I'm not white. But Europeans colonizing the world and using African slaves for labor began categorizing the world's people into colors. By the end of the 17th century even, Europeans had started calling themselves white. They start using that in the law. They, they had originally just called themselves Christians, but they start... They start categorizing people into these colors, and they're calling themselves white by the end of the 17th century, and they created these ideas that colors correlated to races. 
And so you have colors correlating to races. They said, oh, there's the white race, which doesn't make sense, but that's the way that we talked even today. And they created a hierarchy of these colors. And they said the white people are supreme. They're biologically superior. And they're biologically unalterably superior. And then these other colors are below them. Usually it was like yellow and then red and then black or some version of that. So they created this hierarchy that they called white supremacy. It's the white people are supreme and all the others are under them biologically forever, and therefore the white people need to sort of rule over them. And then they passed laws. They passed laws not only that made these colors the way that we organized our society, but also ensured that all the non-white people remained at the very bottom of society. They ensured that all the non-white people, by their laws, could not have equal access to freedom, property rights, jobs, education, land. And they made those laws over and over again, put into law in the 17th century, and off it went, even, and, we're, and, we're, and we continue to wrestle with this today. Now, let me quickly say, I'm not saying that those racial categories remain static. They're always fluid. They're always changing through history, right? Because we, when we're making it up, you're like, how do you determine who's black and who's white? So, for instance, in American history, at one point in time, you're black in one state and white in another state because they're just making it up. You're, you know, 132 here, 116 here, so... You know, if you're, you're 117th, you, you know, in your line, black, then you're white here and you're black there. So they do change, but the major point, don't miss the point here, right? The sorting began very early. The sorting began very early in America. And as white people in America separated races, they also developed, as I said earlier, this idea that white people were biologically superior to all other colors. Now think about this. Throughout hundreds of years of colonization and slavery, both pro-slavery Christians and anti-slavery white Christians had adopted this view that white people were unalterably and biologically superior to black people. Therefore, they didn't want to sit together in church. And so, all the ch almost every church that we know of was segregated. Almost every church from the get-go. So, before the end of slavery, and slavery ends in the 1860s, if white Christians let non-white people into their churches, they had to sit in the back and sit in the balconies because they were second-class citizens, apparently, in the kingdom of God. So, you better believe that black people left these white churches as soon as it was legally possible because of the racism that they experienced in these churches. And so the final segregation that we live in today of the Christian churches in America happened after the Civil War of the 1860s when it became uh, legal, like, like black people and non-white people got to choose where they went to church. And this is when almost all black Christians finally left white communities and created independent African-American denominations and independent African-American congregations that are still with us today. And I need to be clear here because there's a lot of times confusion on this. They left white churches because of the sin of racism. They left white churches because of the sin of racism. And here's the deal. Most white Christians favored the segregation of the churches. From the 1860s all the way to the 1970s, we have plenty of white Christians that continued to want segregation. Even after the 1970s, many white Christians throughout that time gave their money and their effort to ensure that there were separate spaces for black people to worship so that they were not with the white people. And from then until now, Christian communities, when we gather, Christian communities, when we gather, 
to on Sunday mornings to worship a Savior who broke down every potential racial barrier for all time and called us into unity rooted in the love of God, we worship in racially homogenous communities. That's a hard story. I've been living professionally. I've been living in this story for about half a decade now, for the last five years. It's a hard story. It's a real problem that we inherited. It's rooted in more than 400 years of history that has powerfully shaped all of our communities and all of our institutions in society. And there just are no easy answers. But when we're reflecting on Christ's last wishes to his disciples, and we live in a nation that has systematically sorted white and black and other colors of people into different groups, and our Christian communities reflect that big sort, surely we have some hard questions to grapple with. I mean, it's really hard for me. I'm just going to give you Jamie right now, right? It's really hard for me to read John 17 in one hand and view our current divisions on the other and continue to be comfortable, especially when I know that the historical reason for our separation was racism in the Christian community. Does that mean it's wrong to gather in racially homogenous communities? Well, I don't know. I don't think so. I hope not, especially in a place like Kingston, right? I mean, I was looking at the U.S. Census in 2010. It's 94% white. I don't know how much has changed in the last 10 years. 2020 Census will let us know. It's a little bit more diverse up at Oak Ridge, and I was talking to folks uh, who experienced that. Like, but even that is 10% still below the national average in terms of homogeneity. So I want to be clear. Like, I, I, this is not easy, and we all live in different places. But surely, surely racially homogenous communities that are supposed to reflect the kingdom of God, surely we can do better. Surely we can do better. Surely we need to do better. Christina Cleveland says this about our homogenous churches, not just uh, racially homogenous, so that's a big component of what she's addressing here. And this is important. She says, our homogenous churches, though perhaps not sinister in intent, certainly lead to sinister tendencies that inhibit our ability to interact well with other groups in the body of Christ, right? So for instance, when I was reading her quote earlier from a black Christian, maybe some of your hearts started pounding a little bit and your palms got a little sweaty, right? Because it's like, whoa, it's hard for me to listen to black Christians. Like they have a different, I'm white and I, that's a very different perspective than mine. Our separation causes us to not be able to um, interact well with others. So here's the deal. What can we do? What can we do? I just told you two big stories, right? One about denominational divisions, one about racial divisions. What can we do to resist the big sort and foster unity rooted in love? Um, I have three questions that I want you to take with you uh, to continue reflecting on this as individuals and as a community. I've got them on the slide here so we can give those to you later on. I've got more specific ideas as well that if we want, we can talk about later. But I do want to give you these questions and have you think. First, what does a response to John 17 look like for me in my daily life? Here's the deal. Everyone that I've read, black and white and brown, says this. We all must start with our own spheres of influence. When you start wrapping your mind around the problem that America deals with right now and that the church deals with and ought to be the headlights for the society, we all have to, it can be overwhelming. And like, I don't know what to do. Start with your sphere of influence. Every single one of us has spheres of influence. So what is yours? Consider it. There is no magic button for grappling with any of this unity and community and race stuff, but the things that we can do are often small things with the people around us and the places where we have influence. They're small, they're hard. They're hard. Any time that we interrupt any kind of racism is hard. It's going to cost us something. Second, and you go put up the second and third ones. We'll be fine, Anita. Um, 
what postures and practices. I like to talk about postures because we got a lot. We got a posture problem in America. I think. Um, what postures and practices could help us as individuals be more receptive to the gift of unity that God has already given us and given this community? You know what I mean by postures? Like the posture of curiosity that says, oh, interesting, that's different from what I think. Tell me about it. Versus the posture of defensiveness, sweaty palms, heart pumping, not listening, ready to defend my view. These are two very different postures, and they lead to the formation of human beings in very, very different ways. Third, what, what can this community do or be to lean into your unity, to our unity rooted in the love of God, and to resist the temptation to participate in our culture's per, big sort, or perhaps to simply perpetuate it by being apathetic to it? What if... I'm going to close here. What if when the world seemed to be at an impasse because everyone had succumbed to the big sort? That's not hard to imagine. What if in that situation Christian communities became leaders in a divided world, showing the world a better way? You know, can, you, can you envision the way? A way that does not bunker and does not sort, but instead opens itself to confession for being wrong? and to forgiving and to being forgiven and to being hospitable to people who, are, who believe and act very differently, to committing to be aware of other cultures. Can you envision the way, like a way that refuses to dehumanize people on other sides of the issue and instead always finds the divine in every set of eyes it looks into? I hope you can envision a way that resists the superficial labeling of wrong Christians and instead creates space for dialogue that begins with wholeheartedly listening to people with different opinions and giving them the benefit of the doubt, a way that always, 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 every time chooses kindness. Kindness, despite the norms of our world. Christina Cleveland said it like this, and the last quote I'll use from her. There I was, convinced that I was defending Jesus by condemning wrong Christian when I saw that Jesus was beckoning both right and wrong Christian and inviting all of us to know more of his heart. Brothers and sisters, may we resist the big sort and strive for Christian unity even when it costs us dearly. Let's pray. Oh God, hear our prayer. We are aware of our endless failures to be the community you intended, and we are aware of our brokenness as a community. Help us to weep for our sins of the past and of the present. We repent, for in too many cases throughout history and today, we have neither accepted Christ's gift of unity nor taken up unity as our task. Give us grace to see the dangers that we are in by our divisions. We ask that you would take away all hatred and prejudice and whatever else may hinder us from unity and harmony. That, as there is but one body and one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, so we may be all of one heart and of one soul, united in one holy bond of truth and peace, of faith and justice, and may with one mind and one mouth glorify you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.
we, uh, we always offer an invitation. Um, that's what we're doing now. If God has laid some on your heart that you need to make public, you need to rededicate your life, give your life to him the first time, officially join our church, just ask for prayer. Uh, people will join you at the back to pray or come up here and join you if you want to pray. We invite you to do that. I would like to ask for all of your prayers, though, on behalf of the, the issues that he was talking about today. We're not, we're not, we don't have any specific plans. I don't want you to think there's some secret agenda. There's no big plan. We're not going to merge with another church in five minutes or anything like that. But what, we, what I'm asking you to do is ask these questions, to pray these prayers, to, to, to really seek God. How can we as a church lean into unity in every direction? How can we so much define that within our own community and as we reach out that people can't help but be drawn to Christ? What, what might we be blind to? What, what does God want to open our eyes and our hearts to? How can we have more wide open eyes and more wide open arms? I just want you to ask that question and to pray that in every direction and see where God takes us together. And this morning as you stand and sing, would you, if you have a decision to make right now, would you make that?